My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Secret gold vaults in Asia, offshore bank accounts in tax havens, investing in timber plantations in Central America, obtaining a second passport, speaking multiple languages, and first-class travel around the world excite you, then you must pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a Polish-born entrepreneur and an executive focused on online business in frontier and emerging markets. He co-founded HotelOnline.co, a hospitality technology company, and Jumai Travel, Africa's biggest hotel booking portal, with backing from Rocket International and Goldman Sachs. In 2014, he was chosen as one of the 10 most important people in tech by IT News Africa magazine. He is a lead mentor at Google's Launchpad and World Bank's XL Africa program. Please welcome to the show, Merrick Zimlowski. Merrick, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure to have you. So Merrick, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you end up in Africa? How did you end up building businesses there? This is fascinating. I'm really interested to learn from you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so long story short, born and raised in Poland until I was 19. Uh, actually bo- raised on uh, American movies from Hollywood and MTV uh, movie clips. So I always wanted to be some kind of an involved in uh, international life and, and business. Uh, I dropped out of university on the first year, like many business-oriented people do. And those were the early 2000 years, so still before the Lehman Brothers uh, crisis and everything that uh, happened afterwards. So I became an early employee. I think I was number five or six of a Polish first and biggest uh, financial institution. You know, those guys that were selling basically investment products and mortgages. And when I was leaving them after three years, there was like 5,000 of us. So I was making way too much money, way too early and way too easy. (laughs) That's how I burned out, lost all my money. I made the first millions when I was 20 something, but then I lost everything. And I ended up at a a bar in a a nightclub in, in, in Warsaw in Poland. But... In the meantime, I fell in love in startups. So I got myself employed in a very early startup in Poland. And I was extremely lucky that that startup exploded. And, uh, and I was working there and I got my shares as well. And uh, since then, I was always in, in love in online companies. And, but I was still in Poland. Uh, another company I built was a, was a company doing uh, online funerals. I know it sounds crazy. But it, were, it was actually a portal for, uh, for everything related to funeral services. And that's when a big, Ameri- big German company uh, found me. Uh, they are called Rocket Internet. Not sure how well known they are in the, the United States, but they're, they're one of the biggest online companies in the world. And basically, they, look, they, they have noticed that I have some significant experience in building online businesses in Poland in the early 2000s. And that's kind of like Africa. <laughs> Those were, that was their knowledge. Uh, of Poland because Afri- uh, Poland used to be known as the, the Africa of Europe because it wasn't as developed as the other Western European countries. And they offered me a, a job to join them and move to Nigeria and to open with them uh, Jovago.com, which was supposed to be a copy of Booking.com, but for Africa. Um, so I, I joined this huge company because, because I was like, what the heck, I have nothing to lose. I uh, was extremely lucky again because this company right now is a publicly listed company. It's called Jumia Travel after a couple of mergers. And two weeks ago, it, uh, it did an IPO at the New York Stock Exchange. 
Uh, however, I left them, opened a hospitality software company after that, fell in love in Africa, uh, still till today, although it's a love and hate relationship. We will probably talk about it now. Yeah, now. Uh, also, so that company currently doing more of an advisory uh, role for companies wanting to enter Africa, kind of slowed down with, with the business part, wrote a book and currently preparing to publish it in, uh, in English because it has been already uh, published in, in Poland um, two months ago. Perfect. I definitely want to talk about the book a little bit. So first, let's get into a little bit about, about your experiences in Africa. So did you spend the majority of your time in Nigeria or where were you? So first four years, I was based in Lagos, Nigeria. And 50% of my time, I was also working in Nigeria. The rest of my time, I was traveling mostly between the West and the East Coast because Nigeria and Kenya were our two most important markets. Uh, later, I also added uh, South Africa to that mixture. I moved to Cape Town after those four years in Nigeria, and I've lived in Cape Town then for two years. Brilliant. I went to Nigeria twice last year, and I've been to South Africa and Botswana and things like this, uh, Kenya as well. But Nigeria really is a different beast, I found, than pretty much any other country I've visited in Africa. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, Africa as a, as a, as a continent, it's, 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 uh, it's a many, many times a rough or a challenging continent to live in, but Nigeria is like Africa on steroids, I always yeah. say that. It's, it's a very, uh, very energetic country with all the good things and bad things that come with that uh, description. Well, and I was watching one of your TED Talks uh, while you were talking, you had some slides up and you were showing pictures of cities and resorts and things like this. And it was kind of like a, a guessing game. Uh, where's this? Where's this? And then you were surprising everyone with some of the projects that are being developed in, in Africa and specifically, I think, um, Nigeria. Yes, that is true. Uh, right now, what is happening is that there's like a new city being built uh, at the shore of the ocean in Lagos because it happens to be easier to just bring some sand from the land uh, and just steal some land from the ocean than to just totally renovate and restructure the, the part of the city. So just like it happened in Dubai or in Singapore, there's like a totally new city built within, within a city of Lagos. It's a huge multi-billion dollar uh, investment that not, not too many people from Western world really know about, but it's absolutely huge. Well, it's so interesting because I'm based out of Abu Dhabi. So Dubai is, you know, 45 minutes, an hour away or something like that. And you see the pictures and really like it, it could exist here in Abu Dhabi or in Dubai or any of these um, GCC countries. But to be built in Nigeria was 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 quite surprising. And I've been there. But while I was traveling through there, I did notice there was a just a ton of infrastructure being put up everywhere. The roads were being redone. There was construction everywhere. It, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of movement, you could say. Yes. So there, there, there can be a lot of conversation around who's really financing. You can, we can discuss about the role of China trying to enforce their influence and compete with, with the states and the European Union also trying not to lose in the game of influence for resources. And they're part of the cake that, that is Africa. But the truth is that the infrastructure started, the infrastructure improvement started to increase dramatically in the last, uh, in the last 10, uh, 10 to 15 years. And that really changes the quality of life and quality of doing business. Because when the airports are, easy, are better, when the roads are better, it's just easier to live and do business uh, in particular region. So talk to me a little bit about your experiences building a business in Africa and specifically in Nigeria? Oh, yeah. So I moved there early 2013. Actually, the first time I flew into to Lagos was, was end of 2012. Hired by this big internet company telling me, okay, let's build from scratch the, uh, a booking.com for Africa. And at that stage, uh, we hired a consulting company that prepared like a big many pages report saying that there are around 3,000 hotels in Nigeria. And that should be a good starting point. And after a couple of months of living in Lagos, we actually found that there are more than 3,000 hotels just in Lagos, Nigeria. <laughs> and there are more than 10,000 hotels in the whole country. Um, we were building a marketplace, basically a, a, a website that allows people to go there and book a hotel online, something that is so obvious for us because we use it now on a daily basis. It wasn't that obvious back then because on, on the hotel site, 
we actually had to uh, convince the hotel to work with us by educating about what is internet because less than 5% at that st- uh, of hotels at that time really used internet, had any type of software or Wi-Fi uh, in the hotel. And we had to explain that there's this thing called internet. And soon, in a couple of years from now, many people will stop coming to you from the street. They will actually want to not even call you, but book you, you know, directly uh, on the site. So that's how we were convincing people. And then the biggest problem was, for example, to agree on a fee. Because if 90% of your customers just, just come from the street, then you have no idea how they found out about you because you never did any research. So we don't know really what are your marketing costs. They are hidden. So this is, some, this is why some hotels were willing to pay us 50% commission of the amount that the guest pays. And some of them said that 2% is too much. There were absolutely no rules around that. So we had to somehow work, work around uh, a standard of, you know, how much would you pay for bringing you a customer to the, to the hotel? And on the client side, it was also very interesting. And again, I don't want to generalize whole Africa because then we launched 17 other countries and every country in Africa is different. Mm-hmm. So I, most of my stories, I will focus on, on Nigeria, the biggest market, because it was always 70% of our revenue. What was interesting from the customer side, uh, let me just give you an example from other business. There was a Seal concert in Lagos, Nigeria. Seal is a very famous uh, singer, also with, with roots in Nigeria, from Nigeria. And two days before his huge concert, first concert in Nigeria, if not Africa, maybe they sold 15% of all the tickets. And the organizers were absolutely crazy and scared. And 85% of the tickets were sold 48 hours before the, uh, before the concert itself. So in the, in the space of online booking, of really anything, in my case, hotels, our competition was not other travel agency, online or offline. Our competition was the habit of Nigerian customer not really booking anything up front uh, because maybe if he books earlier, he gets a better price. There was not that culture of booking something ahead. We also had to educate, uh, acquire customers by educating about the concept of booking ahead and also booking online. Those were the early days. Yeah, it was. But that's amazing because you say that's 2012 and the stories sound more like 2000. Like they, they sound like 20 years ago, not eight years ago. Yeah, so what, what you have to remember is that, you know, Africa is full of, um, what's the word, um, extremes. Let me just put it this way. So on one side, you have Lagos, Nigeria, of course, the huge city where the mobile internet right now is faster than anywhere in the US. I would even risk. <laughs> I always had problems in Silicon Valley with the internet. But this is just a, a percentage of the whole population and, and, and the whole market. You can just, uh, you know, drive five minutes outside Lagos and you automatically have no infrastructure, no internet, no, uh, no, no customer education. So you, and there all the problems and all the challenges look as if they were 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Not, nothing really has changed much uh, since then. But obviously the business doesn't happen only in Lagos. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, was, it, it, it does sound like it was 40 years ago or 30 years ago because outside the big cities, uh, so Nairobi for Kenya, Lagos for Nigeria, um, what else, Dodoma or Dar es Salaam for Tanzania, and so on, uh, the problems are still, still way deeper. You know? Most of the developments happens in, in the city, but the city doesn't represent the whole market if you want to grow. Well, it's interesting because I have literally thousands of people from around the world who are entrepreneurs who listen to this show. And I think that a lot of people think that they have to do the new thing when they're building a business. They have to do something brand new. But I think that if you can, and and buy your stories, you're able to identify a market which doesn't have something that's already working somewhere else and you just bring it there because it's already a tried and tested model. Booking hotels online works, like we know that. But if it's not in a giant market like Africa, like that's an incredible opportunity. This is one of the main reasons for a young Polish guy. Well, I'm not young anymore. I'm 33. <laughs> I, should, I should stop saying the word young. I'm still used to it. Uh, I was too young to kind of take advantage of the Polish huge transformation after Poland abolished uh, communism. So that were the early 90s. And that's where Poland absolutely boomed in terms of economy and capitalism. And, um, and I was only a couple of years old back then. So when I landed in Africa, I landed in Nigeria, 
uh, on every corner of the street, I had 10 business ideas in my head because I was just used to specific normal businesses that I just don't see here. So Nigeria for me was like Poland in the 90s, just 10 times bigger. And uh, what's also cool is that if you run a business in, in Europe right now, most probably you're going to come up with an idea with number 100, how to you know, steal money from a millennial's father's credit card account to come up with a new game and mobile application. Mm. And the, the business you can, you can currently still launch in, in Nigeria because, you know, the economies are just not as developed as in the Western world. You have a chance to build you know, one of those, you know, more real businesses. And for me personally, that gives much more satisfaction because the, the, the best side of capitalism for me are those, those, those small real businesses. The, that, that capitalism with big corporations and destroying the environment, that's, that's not the good side of capitalism. The, the, the best one for me is in the, in the small real business, solving those, those major basic issues. Well, and a lot of people don't seem to understand, and, and I, would, I would say most Westerners don't understand that Nigeria is one of the largest countries in the world. They have one of the largest population. They have the third largest film industry. Like it's a monster of a country, like so much potential there. Oh, yeah. And it's funny that you've mentioned Nollywood, which is really like second biggest in terms of the numbers of movies produced. Obviously, the quality of these movies is not as, as good as in Hollywood, but Bollywood has the same problem in India, the quality of the movies. But imagine suddenly pumping much more money into Nigerian Nollywood, making better quality movies that are kind of sending a better message, a better PR, better image of Nigerian Africa as, mm -hmm. a, as, a, as a background for those movies. Imagine, uh, let's look now into the past, how this helped the United States, like all those Hollywood movies, how it helped to build that, that American myth that then become a reality because everyone wanted to go there. And that's how it, how it helped to, to create then, uh, the, the American economy. I really believe that, for example, Nollywood can be a great way to change the image of Africa by making better quality movies uh, that are showing uh, a better PR, better image of Africa in the background. Well, it's true because there's so many things you see on television and it'll be like Ethiopia starving children and, and these videos. And I think about the, what the damage that does to, to the image and to the psychology of the people. That's even worse. That is true. There's, there's a huge industry of, uh, of uh, NGOs that obviously do a lot of good things, but they kind of have to, you know, pass on the negative image of Africa, show that negative side that many problems are still not solved because that's how they raise money. Uh, they raise money by showing the negative image. Uh, business is more like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You got to say that sometimes it's maybe better than it really is to attract investors and businesses and they will kind of make it better yeah? just by coming in. So talk to me a little bit about the challenges that you did face while you were living there. Oh, so uh, for me, I think the biggest challenge really uh, was to understand the dynamics in the society because Africa and then every country is such a complicated from the social, social perspective um, region because, you know, even in Nigeria, you have more than a couple hundred tribes, of course, four main ones. Africa, um, when, when the colonialism times ended, was divided into countries where many, usually competing with each other tribes, were now forced to live within one country. Uh, what is interesting is, for example, in, I don't know, in South Africa, you have 11 formal languages. In Nigeria, you have also a couple of formal languages. And even Nigerians, and Nigerians speak to each other in English because they come from different tribes. They don't know each other's languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for us, from the communication perspective, it was easier, but understanding the social dynamics uh, and the, the, the tribalism, that for them is way more deep, deeply rooted than the patriotism, because patriotism, let's say, relates to the name of the country and tribalism relates to the, to the, to the name of the tribe you come from. Tribalism is, is way stronger. And then the way people look at life, look at business, uh, much different from, from a typical Eastern European or Western European perspective. I'm talking about very basic things. Let me just give you two examples. Um, I was always trying to be on time for every meeting and my driver was making fun of me that uh, I am the one with a watch and he's the one with time. <laughs> and the more important person I had to meet, he would always force me to wait uh, because that was a sign of showing who's the, who's the, who's the big guy here. Mm, status. 
it's a sign of status, yeah, how much someone waits for you to meet you. And also one very, very important example for me was that imagine we are talking now in a coffee shop and probably there are people around us. We would try to, you know, keep our voice down because maybe we don't want other people to hear us. But most importantly, we don't want to annoy other people that may want to, may are busy, may are busy with something else. Mm-hmm. However, in many African tribes, you would notice that people talking to each other in a public space are way louder than you would expect them to be. And if you don't know where they're coming from, you would, in the, in the slightest form, consider them as rude. But in reality, many of those tribes uh, come from an understanding that if you talk to a person loud in a public space, that means that you have nothing to hide and you are an honest person. And if you would speak uh, in, in, a, in a very quiet way, that means you have something to hide and you're a fraud maybe. Uh, so now think how many times you were annoyed by someone maybe from Africa talking too loud to, each, uh, to someone else sitting at the table next to you. And I remember how that changed my approach into understanding other cultures and other traditions. It's very easy to become uh, racist. It's very easy to become xenophobic when you suddenly land in a different culture and everything around you irritates you because subconsciously you're expecting different behavior. And if you're expecting something subconsciously, then you expect it on an emotional level. If something is happening in a different way, you're getting annoyed because it's emotion. Only after you start to understand that people just come from a different position and they have other understanding, that's when you kind of open up and you, you know, become much more tolerant. Uh, I had that lesson learned and it was a, a big it was a big change for me because I come from a homogenic country. Uh, the first black person I met in my life was the ambassador of Nigeria in Poland that I, that I met when I was applying for a visa. So I didn't meet or speak to a black person until I was 20. Uh, now I have to quickly count 24, six or something like that. So imagine that, that, that uh, compare this to probably your experience or someone living in the United States or a, or a Western European country. But do you think that that perspective, while you learn those lessons, do you think you learned it once and then you were fine? Or do you think that this is something that you are constantly learning? Well, I think every, every, um, what's the word? Every time you get exposed to a new culture, the learning process happens again. I just believe that every time it gets easier because you already have those positive recollections of learning something new and understanding someone else's culture and seeing how this enriched you. And you're kind of looking forward to it. You know, this is why so many people get addicted to travel. Also expats, you know, business, uh, living somewhere else for a job is a way of travel for them and moving around the world because they are already kind of addicted to it or they see the value in it. They see how it enriches them. So I believe it's always a learning phase, but it just gets easier over time and uh, until it becomes a pleasure. Well, I agree with you 100%. I just know from my own life, like I've been here in the Middle East for eight years and I'm still surprised sometimes with behavior. And I, I sometimes have to take a step back and try to think about things from someone else's perspective and really put myself in their shoes. Because it's so easy just to make a, a judgment. Oh, they should do it like this or this is better. But without understanding a lot of the culture and the history, you know, it it's really arrogant to actually think like that. So I even have to remind myself, and I've been traveling for 20 years now abroad, Yes, uh, yeah, that, that is true. Uh, that's, that's even another way, like reminding yourself that you have to listen to the conscious part of yourself and not allowing this, this, this habit of, uh, of being used to something take over. You know? Because there, there's, there will always be part of you trying to put everything into a habit so we don't have to think about it anymore. You know? That's how our body works. We want to put everything, push everything into subconsciousness so we have less things to think about. <laughs> So talk to me on the opposite side, opposed to the challenges, the things that just really excited you about working in Africa, the things that made you made it all worthwhile. So I think my excitement comes from the business perspective. And I gotta I gotta I have a confession here. Although I've been living in Africa since 2013, effectively. I have never been to a safari or anything like that. So I've never <laughs> tried any of those obvious touristic things. My Africa are our offices, airports, airplanes, 
uh, businesses. Mm. And in many ways, my Africa is where my experiences are different than, than many other people. So, but at the same time, for, for me, Africa is at such an exciting stage where so little things are established. There's still so much to, to win and to lose, to, to, to gain. At the same time, it's still a very chaotic continent, politically, socially, uh, business-wise. Uh, that, that, ca- that chaos is that, that excitement part for me. That, that's, that's my drag of choice. It is exciting, but man, it is so full on. Like I think of my times in Nairobi and I'm like, oh my God, this is so much. Like I, It's hard to even handle um, sometimes. Like, it's going to be so overwhelming. <laughs> I would be, for example, Lagos, Nigeria. I would be in Lagos for a month and then I would already see that, okay, this is getting into me. So I want to... I want to get some sanity back. I want to get some brain hygiene again. So I would come back and go to a resort or go go a short, short vacation. So like you don't want to go for a like, for a two weeks vacation every year. Like you want to go for a for a four days vacation every month for every two months, <laughs> uh, because how how much energy it sucks out of you, but at the same time how it's uh, how addictive uh, this is. Me as a businessman or manager or, or a consultant, I'm most excited about the earliest most chaotic parts of every business. So it's so-called zero to one million of dollars revenue. The moment there is already an established business with some traction and we've passed this critic mass and the company has inertia. Now you need a CEO that looks more at Excels. I'm, I'm allergic to Excel. So I'm, I'm, I'm happily then removing myself from the, from the position and searching from, for new challenges from scratch, either within the organization I've built or within a new organization. And when you were working with, when you had employees and you were working there, did you find that they had a lot of excitement for building the business? Did they have a good work ethic and, and put in the time and the energy and the effort? My new book, Expat Secrets, is based on my own experiences from traveling to more than 100 countries over the last 20 years of being an expat. There is no fluff in this book, just actionable advice from someone who leads this type of lifestyle every single day. So if you want to pay zero taxes, live overseas, and make giant piles of money, then I want you to grab a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. So this is a tricky part because many times employees have in, re- in regions we don't understand. That same happens to, to Polish employees in the opinion of German managers, for example, or business people. In, in Africa, many times I have come across an opinion that African employees or Nigerian employees or Kenyan employees are lazy or they don't pay attention to details or they don't have good work ethics. And so what, what I've learned is that you've got to understand it also from the other perspective. I heard a saying in Nigeria that you gotta have three jobs because you know two will two jobs will work out and you will only get paid for one. So I've noticed that in Nigeria my employees, my coworkers, my teammates were even overly productive, but they were overly productive not in one project, but they always had some side projects next to the main one because from the years of experience they just couldn't put their all their eggs in their ba- in their basket because they would work for someone for six months or a year and they wouldn't get paid. Uh-huh. So, uh, so it took time to build that. So, so building a great environment and great atmosphere in, at work is one, but what is really important is just to build that feeling of stability that this business will not just collapse in a month. Um, so, and it wasn't super easy, especially when you were running a startup because we were essentially building startups. So those high risk businesses uh, that have a high potential of returns, but at the same time, high risk of, of, of failing. Uh, we would introduce, uh, of course, uh, shares uh, for employees, stock options, phantom shares, any type of programs that would, you know, make them want to work with us long term, which was super uh, challenging because the moment they get the international experience working with one of our organizations um, and they hadn't had that earlier, uh, immediately they become an extremely valuable asset in the work market and they would have 10 job ad- 10 other job offers. Uh, uh, from other companies or they would just go move, move on and build something uh, on their own. Uh, I think 10 of my initial co-workers right now have their own uh, companies and they're pretty successful. 
so that's that's a great feeling but that's also a, a great risk for you as a as an employer and as a boss that if they leave you too early then all that money you've put into hiring someone uh, unexperienced putting all that knowledge into him uh, hoping that he will give you value in the long term you know that's where the plan doesn't work out and that's a risk as an employee for an employer well and it's interesting because you just mentioned about training someone up and I remember listening to one of your talks, I'm not sure which one it was, but you were talking about how you had a gentleman who was working as your driver, and I think one day you got really, really sick or something like that. What happened there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so obviously, I, I, would, I would have a driver in Lagos, Nigeria, because the city is so big, and it's impossible to drive on your own, because first of all, it takes you hours to get from A to B, and second of all, if police sees a white guy, unfortunately, driving a car, they would always stop me. And that's another an hour wasted talking to the police people. So I'd have a driver. And in the beginning, I was of couple first couple months of me in Nigeria, I was extremely sick, uh, especially after I ate anything because my my body was getting used to this new type of you know environment, bacteria, food, and everything. So sometimes I would feel really bad and I couldn't even talk, walk. And I uh, there was a there was a day when I was about to go for a meeting and during the ride, I felt so bad I couldn't really have that meeting. And my driver suggested that he would do and for the meeting with the hotel owner and convince him to work with us. So basic thing, we will give them clients, they will pay us commission, he was supposed to negotiate the commission. And then I said, well, I have nothing to lose, work is he doesn't sign a deal, maybe make a bad image, but it's worth a try. So I gave him all the documents. This guy was already working with me for a couple of weeks, so what I didn't know is that he actually understood what my business was because he would read my materials, he would listen to the meetings. So he went and he actually did all the work that I was doing. And then he did it again. And I, he ended up, you know, I was hired him as my business development manager. And actually he's still with the company till, until today. Now he's working in the finance operations team and he's, he's, he's built himself a career in the, in the, in, in the organization. And that was amazing because you would, you would never expect that someone on such a position would have such a, such a potential, you know? Uh, but that's also a, 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 an effect of high unemployment. You know, people with great potential, people with great backgrounds, education, sometimes just don't have the work because of the high unemployment rate. Well, I think this is such a brilliant story because you are really making a difference by driving the economy. Like when we talked a couple minutes ago about sending money to Africa and support a child a day and all these things like that. A lot of people think that they're doing good work, but if you actually start reading and understanding a lot about those NGOs, you are actually keeping people down and you're not making a positive impact. And I think that if you really want to help in a place, then drive commerce, like go and spend your dollars there and let people work and let them people earn their own money and empower them to do so. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, someone's psychology and their self-worth and and being able to earn money on their own, not not being given handouts and and charity. Yeah, yeah. Well, aid, of course, aid is better than nothing. Uh, but aid is has also negative aspects because of its inefficiencies. We've already discussed that because it's enforcing the negative image. And then in many cases, giving the fish is way worse than giving the tool to... Mm. You know what I mean? Hunt the fish. I'm sorry, sorry, but English is not my 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 initial language. Sometimes I forget the words. Um, and and I don't want to sound too humble, not too not humble enough here. But you know, many times when we were building a, an an online business, we had to hire. I think in Nigeria there was like an office with 300 people, so mostly customer service, sales, operations, finance, legal. Uh, many times, you know, those people we would hire for sales or for customer service, we were able to hire them without any specific background or education because we were able to teach them everything. And in many times, if it wasn't for our company, you know, seven years ago, you know, they wouldn't have too many opportunities of, you know, working in an office and getting hired into customer service or sales or working for an online company that would then allow them to build their career around online space. And that's, that's, I think that's the the thing that gives me the most satisfaction in terms of impact. And it's that, you know, that's that employment opportunity and exposing someone to a new area of business that they wouldn't be exposed if it wasn't uh, for us. That's how I see it. It's super exciting. So I want to change gears a little bit, Marek. I want to talk to you a little bit about the corruption 
that you experienced there, because I think you have some some interesting stories, I suppose. <laughs> oh yeah, so uh, I, I essentially I became an Interpol wanted uh, persona, and I was put on the Interpol red notice list, the same list that is that uh, terrorists and drug smugglers are being put on. And that happened because officially the Nigerian government for a year and a half wanted me uh, for so-called high-scale financial frauds. In Nigeria, you can, you can be put into jail for 20 years, uh, up to 20, 21 years uh, for, uh, for this thing. There was an arrest warrant on me and Nigerian government and Nigerian Ministry of Justice even requested my extradition because at that time I was in Poland. Uh, they requested my extradition from Poland to um, to Nigeria, and everything happened based on some very peculiar, I want to use the diplomatic word, very peculiar and specific relationships between the Nigerian police and one of my Nigerian and Indian, uh, but local local business partners. So that's, that's the beginning. And to, to now say something more about the corruption, yes, I was exposed to a corruption on a couple of levels. I think the smaller level is that blurry line between uh, what is a what is a tip uh, and what is where does tip end and when does corruption start? So those daily dealings with the police, for example, that would stop uh, stop you and then they would search you for half an hour, an hour, and keep you there on purpose, uh, pretending they are looking for some problems with my driving license or with the car just to make me annoyed and I wait until I offer a, offer a bribe. That's a huge problem. Uh, then you would have corruptions on a, on a small government level or official level where, for example, if I, as the CEO of company, there was a, there was a, there was a time when we wanted to have uh, a stance at the airport. So you would have like a kiosk when people would be able to come to us and talk to my employees directly to book a hotel and maybe make a payment. And obviously when a, person from Europe would apply for having, uh, being able to rent such a place. There would always be problems. Uh, and then there would always be someone that would come up and suggest solving these problems and helping to process that application to rent the place faster. There were many situations where at some point I just wouldn't go personally and I would always have local staff to deal with for me. Because if I did it personally, everything would take twice as long and it would cost twice as much. Uh, everything I think is, is rooted to the fact that many people are just not paid enough and then they have to look for, uh, for other ways of making money. But I'm not an expert in fighting corruption really and in the roots of corruption. And obviously there's this corruption that I was exposed in the most dram dramatic way and that um, made me end up in, in Polish jail for, for, a, for a night and thank God it ended there. I almost got into Nigerian jail. And that's the corruption uh, on, on the highest business level uh, where, where business, politics, and law enforcement are, um, again, what's the word, are, are very much involved with each other when it comes down to, to making a business. And all those big deals, unfortunately, in, in still many African countries, many times happen with some sort of involvement uh, of, of governments and not always in the, in the cleanest way. And in my case, the Nigerian police, uh, Nigeria, unfortunately, according to many rankings, is still a very, very corrupt country. And the most corrupt institution in Nigeria is Nigerian police. Uh, in one of my articles, I'm showing sources to show in how many civil disputes police is getting involved on an annual level. And uh, the, the numbers are just uh, through the roof. And it is because there's always some additional incentive that someone can present to the Nigerian police if they get, uh, if they get involved uh, in, in a business dispute. And what a better way to convince someone uh, to you know, sign a deal, agree to sell something or agree to purchase something. What a better way than uh, you know, putting someone in jail for a couple of days to scare him up a little bit. So is that what happened with you then? Your business partner wanted you to sell something or, or, or make a deal so he complained to the police about you? Or how did that work? So in my case, uh, it, was, it was related to the hospitality software we had. Uh, I had, uh, besides international investors from Poland, uh, India, and uh, there was also an, an investor from Nigeria of an, Indian, uh, of an Indian descent. However, he invested through his Nigerian company. 
Um, and this particular investor didn't agree to the transaction that we wanted to do. We were basically wanted to sell, to sell our company to our competition. And he was the only investor that didn't want to, first of all, wanted to take over the company uh, because he felt like he can run it locally without us. He didn't want our money and our involvement anymore. When the takeover attempt didn't work because we didn't agree for it and uh, all the management board and supervisory boards blocked it, that's where he didn't also agree to sell the company to the competitor because he claimed the money wasn't enough for him. He, he wanted twice as much as he was offered in cash. However, at the same time, we were able to force him to agree to the deal because of so-called drag along term. Uh, I don't want to get into too much specifics. Because he was the smallest investor, a minority investor, he had to take part in the whole deal. So everyone else agreed to the price. He had to agree as well. However, he never came to pick up his cash. Uh, there were, everything was quiet for a year. And then suddenly I learned when I was in Poland by accident, because I, uh, I'm not, not by accident, surprise, was the word again, randomly I was in Poland because I visited Poland for Christmas. And when I was flying out of Poland at the airport, I found out that my name was put in the system and the Nigerian government uh, wants me. So of course, everything, everything later, later came out. That's what the book is about. And there, there's a lot of uh, FBI style and Hollywood style reporting where I would go for meetings with a certain type of people being plugged with microphones to record everything and collect the evidence of crime. But basically, uh, the whole concept was that someone in the Nigerian police started an investigation against me, set up an arrest warrant, sent it to Interpol. There's another case of the whole Interpol as an organization that is, you know, helping countries like United States, Poland, Germany, but as well Turkey, Iraq, Afghanistan and Nigeria to uh, catch the criminals. Interpol tries to be neutral. So it enforces Nigerian arrest warrant the same way it enforces uh, Switzerland arrest warrant. Uh, but anyway, there was an arrest warrant. And then I got contacted by certain individuals from Nigeria saying that if I pay a specific amount of money, which by accident was exactly the same amount of money that my investor wanted earlier, the whole arrest warrant and extradition request will disappear within a day. <laughs> oh, so let's say within a couple of days. <laughs> I, uh, so that was, that was the whole concept. And uh, I remember that's when I decided that I'm going to get out of it. I'm not going to pay this. Even if I'm going to have to pay way more for lawyers, I will get out of this. And then I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> so the first thing that comes to mind for me is if you had been traveling through a different country, if it was not your home country, do you think you would have been sent back to Nigeria, extradited to Nigeria? Most probably, yes. I was extremely lucky because I was in Poland. And the only reason why I got uh, let free, I was let free. However, I wasn't able to travel out of Poland for more than a year because I, there was this legal battle. I, I actually sued the Nigerian police to court. And that's, a, that's one of the positive sides uh, about Nigeria that I want to enforce. I actually won against the Nigerian police in Nigerian federal court that I won two cases. So twice, Nigerian federal court has decided that the whole arrest warrant was illegal against me. So there's a lot of corruption in Nigeria and there's a lot of corruption in Nigerian police. However, if the Nigerian judicial system was also absolutely corrupt, I would have no chance to win my case. And I'm the only, I think, foreigner that would take Nigerian police to court and I won. Um, but it, to answer your question, if I was stopped in South Africa, where I spent most of my time, or Kenya, well, obviously in Nigeria, I would be, I would be stopped and I would be in jail in one hour. If it happened in any of the African countries, or maybe in any of the countries where relationships with Poland are not better than relationships with Africa or Nigeria, then I would be most probably uh, transported to Nigeria. I was just lucky that Poland, by definition, doesn't allow to extradite its own citizens. So if it wasn't for me being in the same week in Poland when the whole arrest warrant uh, came into power, I would be screwed, to be honest. I would be most probably uh, sent to uh, Nigeria, spend there a couple of days in a, in a, in a jail, get, got scared a little bit until I signed the papers that someone would force me to sign. That's terrifying. Like, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of think of how I would behave in a situation like that. And if I got sent to a Nigerian jail for a few days. I don't think that'd be a very good experience. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're not the easiest ones to to live in. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. So, tell me the name of the book. So the book is called Chasing Black Unicorns. Uh, you can also it's gonna be published in English in the American and English speaking countries in autumn, probably September. Um, if you are interested in getting notified about the book premiere, obviously it's going to be available in a paperback, uh, audiobook, and an ebook. But if you're interested in finding about it earlier, then you can just go to chasingblackunicorns.com. If you don't mind me saying that now, and uh, you can leave your email to get notified about it. Well, absolutely. I want to pick up this book. And I don't know if this is still a working title for the subtitle or not, but I have How Building the Amazon of Africa Made Me a Terrorist. <laughs> That's like, I'm like, what the, I got to read this now. Like, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So the way I uh, come up with the whole concept of this book is that throughout, you know, all these years of running, working, running a business, working in Africa, I've noticed that there's really not much literature about business in Africa. Like most of the books I would find that would be some, you know, academics writing about, you know, why is it so bad in Africa if it's so good? And uh, the other books are probably some about guys that would travel across the Sahara Desert on a bike. But I was lacking like a proper business literature about Africa. And, and also at the same time, I would always have this habit of writing stuff down, especially when I got frustrated with something. I would like write blog posts. I would just write in my diary. So I would, I would already have some interesting, in my case at least, business material about Africa. But that would be super boring for someone outside my niche, outside my technological niche, or online business niche. Then this stuff happened. And I was like, if I add a couple of stories that happened to me in Africa, besides the Interpol and other crazy ones as well, and I mixed this by uh, some kind of a version of a biography with that business aspect of doing business of, of, of Africa, then maybe it will be easier to digest that business part. You know? So that's how this you know, book come to life because it has a business part and it has this crazy, many times dangerous, but now funny if I, if I look at it from the perspective of time, uh, adventures. Uh, and that was the concept to make it more digestible. Well, I imagine that you must have so many stories, good and bad stories, about your time in Africa. So I think the book is just going to be fascinating to read. I'll definitely be picking up a copy. And you know what, many times, because I already published this in Poland, and after a month it actually became a, a status of a bestseller, I published this in Poland first just as an experiment to see what the feedback will be. And many people in Poland would even say that these stories are just too crazy. <laughs> but the, the reality is, if you live in, in such a region like Africa or Middle East or any countries in um, South America that are not as developed as the so-called first world, then those type of stories just happen to you. you know? um, like, for example, the fact that I had to help a Polish woman that got kidnapped by her and then a Nigerian husband, and she was kept in the house and wasn't allowed to, to go out for a couple of months. And we were trying to arrange to, to get her out because the Polish embassy couldn't do anything until she, she, she gets to the embassy. Uh, outside the embassy, the, the Polish embassy just told us to call the, to call the police, which obviously know <laughs> what, what this would let, lead to. So yeah, there were many stories like that. And I figured to, I'll, let me just put it all into one book, plus add the business aspect and all the problems about you know, fighting the Interpol and Nigerian police and, and fighting in courts for, for justice, really, and, and, and fighting with being treated, treated as a criminal because of business conflict. Well, and I don't want to ruin the surprise of the book or anything like that, but the, ro the red notice from Interpol, um, you were able to win that. You're able to now travel freely, correct? Yes. Yeah, so this, this whole case is still being processed by Interpol. And again, that's, a, that's another level of story about the whole issues with Interpol and how it treats problems like that. The good thing is that I was able to win everything that I was supposed to win in Nigerian courts. So, so I, I am already a free man. I should be. However, to minimize my risk of being stopped again anywhere in the world, my case has to be still processed by Interpol and officially taken down in the system. So I don't have to explain myself every time um, the, the, the border control sees something strange in, in my records or in the system. So I can travel. However, my lawyers have been telling me just to stay, stay in the European Union until, for, until now. 
However, I don't know when you will be publishing this interview. Uh, if this is going to be in June, then I will be able to travel again because the whole paperwork, the whole procedure is supposed to uh, finish end of May. Wow. That's pretty, pretty scary stuff, but yeah, definitely good, uh, good writing material for sure. You know, you never want to read a book where you know exactly what's going to happen and everything works out and everybody is safe and everything is perfect. I remember sitting somewhere at the police station. I don't know where that was. And I just said to myself, my book just became three times more interesting. <laughs> Kept me motivated. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Merrick, Super interesting stories. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show today. If my listeners want to find out more, if they want to learn more about what you do, if they want to pick up a copy of your book this year, where can we send them? Uh, so there's my website, but it's so hard to write it down because of my stupid name, Zmyslowski. <laughs> so I think it's the best way to go to chasingblackunicorns.com and it's going to send you directly to my site and there's a section related to the book where you will get note uh, where you will see probably first chapter some blurbs and you will see all the links that will allow you to get the the, the book as soon as the, the premiere is in which will be like i said in september but i don't know the exact date yet brilliant thank you so much for your time Merrick. i'll talk to you soon okay thanks so much Mikael, for having me have a great day Secret gold vaults in Asia, offshore bank accounts in tax havens, investing in timber plantations in Central America, obtaining a second passport, speaking multiple languages, and first-class travel around the world excite you, then you must pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.